This is Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. Each week, we feature conversations with experts in leadership, management, human resources, culture, and technology to help you succeed in this new normal. This is your host, Benoit Ardivalli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. So this week, I have a completely different type of guest. I'm really happy to be speaking with the CEO of Counter-Strike, Mr. Richard Lawrence. So first of all, Richard, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome, Benoit. So, Richard, I'd love for you just to share a little bit of the background story because I think it's uh, it's, it's it's quite fascinating in terms of, of progression. So, you know, from the military to business and your different learning, can you give us a little bit of an overview of your journey so far? Yeah, of course. So, um, it really started when I joined the army. So, I went to the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, and I uh, became an infantry officer. And I was an infantry officer for nine years. And most of my career was spent um, either on operations or training for operations. Uh, and those operations were Northern Ireland, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I felt like, particularly from the Afghanistan experience, that there was something so intense about it that it was necessary to be able to pass on uh, some of the lessons that were learned, both on a personal level and on the level of, of culture and process. And when I then decided to leave the army in order to explore these kind of opportunities, I decided that I needed to have a more balanced background in order to transfer the lessons over, in order as well to find a method of doing that. So that's when I started to train very heavily in the martial arts. And the theory behind that was to, to gather together the ideas of physical resilience in a way that could be transmitted. And I also did a year's training as a hypnotherapist And that might sound strange, but actually it was my way of gathering together uh, an, an emotional understanding of people. Uh, so to go into a, a deeper level of that. And then I also did a master's degree in uh, philosophy at the University of Liverpool. And you can probably see the pattern here that that was to catch the intellectual development. And so those three areas of physical, emotional, intellectual, they were the areas of development that I felt that I wanted to be able to produce training on. Uh, that would catch people in a kind of holistic way, all on the general theme of resilience. And so, so speaking about resilience, right, and looking at your background in the military and, of course, the, the teaching of martial arts and, I'm sure, all of these other experiences. Uh, but let's start with the, the military. First, what are the lessons learned from the military that, that you want to bring to business and to the world in general? Yeah, so in a, in a nutshell... What I call the lessons that we want to transfer is the art of the counter-strike. Uh, but it's necessary, first of all, to talk about why you want to take lessons from one area of endeavor and take it into another area of endeavor. Because when you mm -hmm. do that, you need to do it with a degree of care. And you also need to do it with the right level of analysis. Otherwise, what can happen is the lessons that you take over are either too general to be of any real use or they're inappropriate, which of course is, is even worse than where you started from. But there's a tremendous value in doing it. I'm very influenced by Edward de Bono, uh, who coined the term lateral thinking. 
And he talks about the fact that if you're stuck on a problem that you can't solve, if you put it aside for a second and instead work on a different problem of equal difficulty, you often have the solution to the first problem when you come back to it. This is because you've changed your perspective. And I also heard it expressed in a, in a different way uh, from an unlikely source, actually, when I was watching a documentary on the rapper, the notorious B.I.G. And as he was growing up, he came under the, the mentorship as a young boy from a jazz musician who lived near him. And this was not just any jazz musician. This was a jazz musician that had played with Miles Davis. And if you know anything about Miles Davis, you know that he did not suffer fools gladly. So this must be you know, quite a yeah. jazz musician. And he was teaching the young boy to be a jazz musician. I mean, that's, that's what he had hope for him in. And of course, he didn't end up doing that. He ended up becoming a rapper and an incredibly successful one. But what he introduced to that uh, area of music was rapping, but with the jazz beats, with the jazz accents. And this jazz musician said that most of the people that transcend know uh, a lot about a lot of different things. They don't just know one thing. And that's because you've got to add something else to the equation in order to move forward. And that seems to me to be the driver of all innovation and all improvement is where you add something significant to the equation. And so this is what I think is the, the, the very important value of taking lessons from the military. So I call it the art of the counter-strike. So if you analyze the, the, the military and the army in particular and the infantry in particular, you can say, well, what is it that they are really doing? Well, combat is, has the biggest penalties for failure of any human endeavor. So you know that you're going to boil down some real principles from having that kind of pressure. And you've got a constant battle in the army when you're on operations between order and chaos. So all of the time, chaos is threatening to take everything out of control. And the processes that you have in the culture that you need to develop and the personnel, the skills that you need to develop in them are all about being able to find a way to stay on the mission despite the obstacles that you face. And that to me is what the army does so well. And that's certainly something that we can learn of. And, and that's, that's a lot of what resilience is at its heart, right? Unless maybe you have another concept or understanding of uh, resilience. Yeah, I do. Um, Obviously, it has been defined in many different ways as we as we sort of move forward and more people become aware of the importance of it. But I call it the art of the counter-strike because what you're looking to do is to take every crisis as a creative opportunity. Because one thing we do know is that chaos will always get in because we live in a world that is a balance between order and chaos. And if that's true, which it certainly is, then the people who are the most resilient are those that are not only able to defend, to resist, if you like, uh, but they're also the ones that are able to make the best use of that opportunity. Because what's so wonderful, if you like, about chaos is that it, it's change. And change will always bring with it um, opportunities. We think about the situation that we're in right now. Um, that's when perhaps not that many people predicted what was going to happen, and that's fine. But it certainly brought in an area of chaos And that chaos brings opportunity. And so the, the people who are resilient are the ones that are able to pivot, able to flex on those opportunities, to be able to simultaneously defend and attack, which is what the Counter-Strike is. Yeah. So, so thanks for defining that, right? Because for a, maybe for a layman, it's not necessarily evident what we mean by, by Counter-Strike. So 
it's the idea that you you defend and you attack at the same time that you can keep an eye on both of these goals and put your effort, I guess, equally in in these two objectives simultaneously, and and I guess coordinating how much resource you put in both. Am I am I in the right direction? Yeah. So uh, just to put a little bit of meat on that bones, and and hopefully give an example that might be immediately useful uh, to people yeah. who will be listening. Um, every planner in the army, um, of, uh, anybody who's worth their salt, they all know the phrase that no plan survives contact with the enemy. Um, that mm. is a cultural as well as a personal understanding of every person who plans. Now, that doesn't mean, therefore, that we abandon planning. Of course not, because if you have no plan, then you will be overwhelmed by chaos. But that idea that no plan survives contact with the enemy, you start with that idea. And what it does is it forces you to then make sure you have your contingency plans in. And that is a is a cultural way of thinking about things. Something that I, I teach uh, when I go into businesses in various different industries is uh, uh, the, the army way of war gaming. So war games that I was present at, particularly in Afghanistan, is when you have the outline of a plan and you decide what it is that you want to do. And of course, this is transferable to a business plan um, immediately. You then play that plan through and you have one of your brightest minds who will then suggest things that could go wrong at every stage. And what that does is it helps them build and shape your contingency plans so that when that chaos does get in, in either a large way or a small way, there's no, there's no panic, there's no loss of time, there's no loss of money because you're just switching to your contingency plans, which you've already worked out. And it's really a tremendous thing when I go into the businesses and you can start to see people's problem-solving abilities really switch on. And one of the things that I try and do, whether it's wargaming, a business scenario, or perhaps even a, a cybersecurity attack, which we also do, you really see how people's talents are brought to bear as they're thinking about these things that may go wrong. And as a result of that, it adds up to a lot more than the sum of its parts, because when you're forced to think about these things, so much more that is creative comes out of it. So even though you may be thinking of a particular specific part of the plan, the human brain being what it is, it starts to create connections with other endeavors that you may be on with at the time and will also produce ideas for that. So it's it's something of a way of really gearing up this machine of problem solving. Um, I had a, a commander once and I was a second in command and he would brief a plan and then he would say to me, right, Richard, what have I missed? And I, I always impressed me because he he could see with his approach that he was willing to take in other people's talents and he would use me as that wargaming individual who could then criticize his plan and, and make it better. But it also had the effect that it kept me on my toes as well, because I had to really listen to everything that he was briefing in fine detail, because I was then expected to find the fault with it. And that was a tremendous way of training. And it makes your plans far more resilient at every stage. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant example. I mean, for, for one, I think it's great when these examples break a little bit of the stereotypes about the the army and the military because we you know people sometimes use the expression command and control or refer to military discipline as if everything was 
literally top down. And if you're below one level, you have to follow blindly orders. But we, we know, I mean, you know more than I do, obviously, that it cannot be the case, especially, uh, you know, in the theater of operation or when things can can go wrong. So I think the, the example breaks a little bit of this mold by showing a military leader engaging a direct report in the, the thinking. But I also show how it elevates the accountability of that direct report in contributing to the to the decision. So what I think it's bringing here is a concept of resilience. It's not just being mentally tough, right? I think sometimes there is a simplistic understanding of resilience as roll with the punch, go with the flow. But I think what you're bringing here is an understanding of resilience that is the outcome of repeated discipline, planning, and also the ability to switch plan if needs be. However, because you made other plans, you might have an idea on how to switch plans. Yeah, but that's exactly right. Something which I'm always trying to overcome is people's general perceptions of what military is like. And some of those perceptions are right, but some of them are way off. And the ones that I yeah. think are particularly way off is, you know, the, the military is an intensely collaborative process. Uh, mm. When I think of those planning stages that we went into in Afghanistan, you know, you have to use all your best minds. You know, the, never is one person expected to do it alone because that just isn't making the best use of your resources. Now, th- there are times when the hierarchy asserts itself and you do exactly what you're told to. But there's a very, very good reason for that. And that's because mm-hmm. you'll be in a position which is so time sensitive. In other words, you're under attack that the only way of going forward on that is going to be with a direct command approach. You know, you can't be having a committee meeting at that point. But apart from those particular points, it's an intensely collaborative process. And you know, we have this expression of mission command. And mission command is a, is a concept of, of command. And what it states is that you tell your subordinates what to do, but you don't tell them how to do it. Mm. So you give them a parameter in which to operate. Now, the, the advantage of this from a combat perspective is that your subordinate knows what they've got to do, but they may have to immediately change the way that they're doing it. So you can't tell them the way to do it, but it's then within their gift. It's within their possibilities to go and make that decision on their own, as long as they achieve the aim which you've set them. And this is another great thing which we, I think we can learn from the, the army combat example is that the, the master principle of war is selection and maintenance of the aim. But the way that you get to that, well, that's, that's up for grabs and depends on the situation. Um, I often talk about in my, in my lectures to businesses, I will say, well, what's the aim of a bookshop? And normally speaking, people will say, well, the aim of a bookshop is to sell books. And actually it isn't the aim of a bookshop. The aim of a bookshop is like any other business. It's to make profit. And it may well Mm. be that in the course of changing market conditions, you need to put a cafe in that bookshop in order to achieve your aim of making profit. But what we can't do is limit ourselves to an aim which isn't actually our real aim. I I often think about there must have been a point in the board meeting at Amazon, bearing in mind that they used to just be a bookseller, where somebody said, would you think we should sell more than just books? And it may well have been that there was an individual there who said, oh, no, 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 we're a book retailer. And yeah. obviously, you know, the right outcome happened because they said, no, no, we're here to be an online retailer. We are a merchant. We are a seller. And so Amazon went on to be the, 
monster that they became, which is, you know, which is a good example of how we need to flex. And that to me is absolutely part of resilience. It begins with understanding what your aim is. And then everything that you do toward that aim can change um, depending on the circumstances and depending on how you have thought about it before, which is the, the bit that I'm always encouraging people to do. And that, that reminds me, I know we were talking a little bit before we, uh, we started the recording. One of my most important personally reading books in, in management business was 30 Management Principle of the, the Marines, who was applying some of the lesson learned from, uh, from the, uh, this uh, unit to, to business. And I recall an example where they were saying, you know, we don't tell our troops how to secure a village. We tell them that the village has to be secured. And it's on the team to figure out what secure mean and, and how to achieve that. I mean, obviously, these people have been trained on all kinds of techniques and have all kinds of knowledge to make it secure. But I was really struck at the time. And, and this was 20 years ago, right? I mean, way before everybody was starting to talk about empowerment, engagement, agility, all of these quote-unquote new approach to management. I'm always surprised when we, we call it new because when you look at the military, and I would see even more within elite troops, that sort of approach have been operating for a while because in this extreme environment, you have no time for bureaucracy, following a process. You have to focus on the outcome, really. And now we're, we're kind of trying to bring that into the uh, the business world. So anyway, I found it amusing that, that this idea was already there and it's starting to seep uh, outside of, of uh, its initial area. Yeah, I mean, this, this is actually a very old concept in the military. I mean, it goes back to von Clausewitz. And I mean, it probably goes back way beyond then as well, but maybe called something different. You know, you wonder if before the time of modern communications on the battlefield, I mean, were the Spartans doing something similar? I imagine they probably were. But certainly this this concept was driven forward as well by particularly the Germans in the Second World War. And they were very keen on this idea of giving the subordinates enough power to be able to make fast decisions, particularly accompanied by the Blitzkrieg tactical doctrine which they had. But this mm-hmm. this kind of points to a, another lesson that I think is very clear in the military, and that's about learning from your enemies. There is a culture, certainly that I encountered and was part of, of uh, learning everything that your enemy does as being your best teacher. And there was no animosity, although that sounds ridiculous, there was very little animosity towards the enemy on a personal level, which is probably a hallmark of a professional army. But it was much more about what can we learn from what they're doing, allow them to teach us. And going back to the example of World War II, the Germans pioneered the idea of the Kampfgruppe, uh, which we could translate as battle group, which is where you have all of your attached arms. So, for example, your engineers, your artillery, all your other attachments, You have them all on the same communications network, all under the same commander who might well be, for example, uh, an infantry battalion commander. Um, But I mean, never mind about the specifics. The point is that you've got all these different elements which are all under the same command and all on the same communications. And that enables you to cut through all of the longer chains of communications that you would have otherwise. And that's something which every army learned from, uh, so much so that, you know, still within the British Army and the Americans, you know, all other armies, they've moved to this model of having the battle group. So 
to, to give it a business example, I used to work in the pharmaceutical industry and I once saw a competitor's uh, marketing material and I thought it was fantastic. And I was at a meeting and I said, have you seen this marketing material that our competitors produced? It's fantastic. And my coming from a different cultural background of the army, I expected mm. them to immediately say, right, let's get on this. Let's see what we can learn from it and let's see how we can improve it even. But instead, there was a stony silence. And they looked at me as if I was some kind of spy for the competitors or something. And yeah. it, it really shocked me because I thought, surely we can't be at the stage where everything that a competitor does must de facto be rubbish and of no use. And it certainly isn't the culture in, in the best sports teams, for example. I mean, all of the time they're learning from their competitors and their opponents. Um, because if they're, you know, no one has a monopoly on, on good ideas. And if it's something that a business competitor is doing, then that should be a challenge to say, well, how can you do what they're doing? Or even how can you improve upon what they're doing? And that is, again, probably quite a surprising uh, cultural reality of, of the military that is not often well understood. True. And, and just to go with the, the theme here of, of moving ideas from one domain to another, when, when I hear about that particular structure of bringing everybody under one commander, when I look today at all the, the squads or tribes or the different scales, agile framework in many businesses, really, this is what we're doing, right? You're bringing the, the development, architect, security, right? All of these different groups or silo under one leader around one process so that you have a sort of a 360 expertise and understanding and, and the rapidity of decision making. I guess the maybe the, the next step is start to do that more of that learning from your enemy type of thinking. Because I agree with you, I've been in similar situation where highlighting the strength of a competition, the first reflex is to think that if you do that, it's because you like competition more than your own company, that it's disloyal. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just a higher level of thinking, right? But people react emotionally to that and, and miss the big picture. And to me, I, I always felt that this is, again, you know, it's my layman perspective, so let me know, but, but there's a, a certain, I would say, ability to abstract and a certain, I would say, even nobility in thinking from the military in which you have to put yourself above those emotional reactions or, uh, or even the bias. And, and you try, you really need to think clearly, objectively, with the best information possible. If you don't have the information, you get it. You might have it from different kinds of sources. So to me, it's, it's a form of higher level of learning. And then another one would be in terms of diversity, right? In the middle of action, you I'm pretty sure you can't really care about the skin color or religious background of somebody. The question is more, can you do this task, yes or no? And, and that's where your talent is becoming much more fundamental than other superficial features of your individuality. Yeah, so um, that's a really interesting point there, Benoit. And where it begins, and I'm going back to this again, is your master principle of war is what? It's selection and maintenance yeah. of the aim. So everything is subordinated to that. So let's apply it to what we were saying about how you're able to detach yourself from not wishing to say the competitor's any good. Is it going to give you an advantage in achieving your aim if you can objectively look at your enemy or your competitor? Yes, it is. So anything else in terms of your 
not your wish not to praise the competitor you realize that for the for the childish nonsense that it is and i'd put it i'd put it that strongly it just becomes mm -hmm. childish nonsense because if you're if you're really really serious about achieving your aim in business or in the military or in anything you can't have time for that um, anything that gives you an advantage and the sports team show us this as well they're ruthless with how they're going to achieve their advantage so it begins with you're subordinating everything to selection and maintenance of the aim or whatever your mission is. Then that brings in the ability to be objective because that's your higher power to, to give it to give it another phrase. On the subject of the diversity, that's also a, an excellent point. And again, it comes back to you're going to take anybody from anywhere who's good, who can help you achieve your aim. I would say one thing on that that's a, a good lesson from the way in which the, the army does it. And that's I've, I've heard many people on your podcast talk about the increase in on-demand mm -hmm. working. So there's a challenge there. And the challenge is how do we make someone feel part of the team? Because we need them to feel part of the team if they're going to give their best efforts. And the army does that with the way in which they engender the sense of culture. And um, it's very interesting to me, having worked, for example, with French forces in Afghanistan, um, I can see the comparison and that all armies do something similar in how they develop the culture. So they do it through the things that you wear. For example, I was in the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. On our berets, we have a big plume coming out, which is called the, the hackle, which is made of feathers. And it has red tip. It's white with a red tip. So it's instantly identifiable as being the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. There's a French cavalry, armoured cavalry regiment that has an extraordinary beret that's kind of all the way down their head. You know, it's like, a, it's like as big as a crepe. You know, it's a very distinctive thing. So all of these seemingly trivial points add up actually to quite a lot in terms of feeling part of the team and feeling part of the culture. And if we are going to move towards more on-demand workers, as I'm sure we are, we need to think very carefully about how those individuals can feel part of the team instantly. And that's what's so useful about things which seem trivial, like what you wear, or a badge that you might have, or you know something like that, which will really bring people into the culture and remind them of the team that they're in and to feel pride in it. Yeah, I mean, you know, these days with my colleagues, we're, we're playing a lot with our Zoom backgrounds, right? I mean, it's, it's a silly detail, but it gives you a, a little sense of, you know, identity or sharing something. So when we are two or three colleagues on a call with a, a, a client and we have that same background, you know, it gives you, of course, it's not like a, a uniform, but it gives a certain sense of shared identity. So clearly something that, that's going to be needed. I'd be curious then to just to continue on this uh, line of thinking, what else do you recommend leaders should be doing now? And, and I'm assuming a context of the remote work, uh, knowledge worker, right, which is the, the typical workers who was until recently, until last year in an office, now is working from home. Now we're starting to hit the, the one-year wall. So we know it's not just temporary. Do you have any other advice for this crowd? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think this is, a, again, you know, a lesson that's transferable from the army. So those workers who are working in, in disparate places feel disconnected from the culture of the organization. So while they are working at home, we need to be hitting those people with 
a ritual. And if you like, it's kind of like a ritual of belonging. So I, I will explain that. If you have some kind of group meeting in a ritualistic way, so for example, in the army, even though it's only a five minute meeting, you're always going to have a daily update every day with all the main players present. Now you can do that digitally or you can do it in person, but if it is at distance, it's a way to remind people of the organization that they that they work in, to, to feel connected. You know, we rightly are becoming more and more aware of the mental health issue. And one of those uh, big factors in it is feeling like you belong, is feeling a sense of connection to other human beings. And I think that we really mustn't underestimate the impact of that. And so if people are working remotely, to put it in a slightly cheesy way, which I don't apologize for, um, but they, they need to feel that, that they are uh, taken care of. They need to feel that they are cared about in some way. And it doesn't need to be a, a, a big deal. It needs to be higher on frequency and lower on duration. So like I was saying with that, just brief meeting, you know, most meetings go on far too long, I find, in, in the business environment because there's quite a lot of filler in there. But if you even have just a group get together, you put a, 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 a little agenda in place, which is quick and snappy, um, and you make it last a very short duration, but you have it with frequency, then already people are feeling part of the team. The other thing that I would say is going to be very important is that as we start to get back in the workplace, that the uh, particularly the HR managers are looking to see how you can have group activities, whether it's the kind of thing that we do, like the planning development to teach people to problem solve and increase their planning ability, or whether it's even one of our like our physical resilience uh, workshops, or it's something else, you know. But just the the necessity of getting people excited and motivated to be back in the workplace and the joy of being in a social place again. And I think it's a great opportunity to really inspire and increase the loyalty of the people who work for you by doing something really beneficial for them. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the physical aspect. I think it, it took a whole new dimension because when people work from home, it's really easy to spend a day where you wake up, eat, work, eat, work again, eat, watch TV, sleep, repeat, which in the long run is not necessarily healthy, but it could be our default setting, right? Unless we are under harsh condition, our nature tend to, to bring us to, to simple and comfortable situation and uh, typing on a, on a laptop and, uh, and watching TV is quite easy and comfortable, right? So I, I feel like until recently, there were concerns around wellness and all those things were important. But I felt like in the last year, the idea of now it's not just a, a job, right? It's your life because you're home and you're also a physical person. You need to take care of, of, of your own body. It, it took a whole new dimension. And I, I sense that from both your military experience, but also the martial art practice and a few things I could glance from your book, Weakening the Warrior. I think you also have a message here for the uh, the, the wider public on, on the importance of the, the physical effort or physical discipline, not just in terms of, of being healthy, but also in terms of itself being a, a discipline, right? Something you learn and maintain and improve upon and integrate as part of your life. Yeah, absolutely right, because... 
uh, the way that I, I kind of frame that is if we understand that our physical body is the most direct way we have of uh, experiencing life. And one of the great things about physical challenge is it presents you with truth. So if you're doing something physical and you become extremely tired, you, you know, you're not bluffing that. That pain in your chest is real. And because it's real, it means that you get real feedback. So you can tell what is going to work and what mm-hmm. doesn't work. And you learn some truths about yourself. And that's absolutely mind-blowingly good for people to know some truths about themselves. Because if you know the state of play, then you can work to in- improve it. Um, in the martial arts, I'll go even further that so one of the things I do is uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, as well as other uh, martial arts. But with sparring in that, you are getting a perfect example of that truth. If you're not doing something right, then your opponent is going to take advantage of it. And you know for sure because you end up having to tap out uh, to get him to release you. And you can't bluff it. You have to be humble. Uh, but that means that you learn some really good lessons. Um, you can emotionally monitor yourself. Uh, there's absolutely no place for ego and you'll soon find out if your ego is out of control and the phrase in the martial arts is if you're not humble you will be humbled Um, and that's a tremendously positive thing Um, along with that you know we have i'm speaking here from england i think we have something like the highest obesity rates in the whole of western europe and so that kind of points to the fact that this is a pressing concern about getting people to be more physical And it doesn't mean that you've got to dive in with the martial arts if that's not your bag, but you will take tremendous benefit on an emotional, physical and intellectual level from doing something which is physically challenging. And it certainly will improve your problem solving as well if you choose something which is challenging, like martial arts, like, you know, you could say something, a game like squash or you know, any of these things where you have an opponent which you have to face. These are uh, tremendously important for our well-being and for our personal development. Yeah. Well, well, it's, uh, it's a lot of good uh, thought, Richard. I almost feel like I uh, owe you for that coaching and consulting lesson. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a really good uh, conversation. Where can we, and that's going to be my final question for you, where can we learn more about your work or anything you share with the world? Yeah, so we have our website. When I say R, my business partner, Kelly Berman, was lieutenant colonel in the army and worked for various different intelligence agencies and special forces. So with with her and I in particular, and that would be uh, www.counterstrikeuk.com. And also some of those concepts which I elaborated on there are in my book, Awakening the Warrior which is available uh, on Amazon, Richard Charles Lawrence. Fantastic. Well, I, I think it's going to be another book on my reading list. You know, as I mentioned, I started with the, uh, the management principle of the Marines. The second one I would say that I read and that influenced my thinking was a team of teams, uh, General uh, Stanley McChrystal. And I think you, you covered that, right? The idea of collaboration and, and communication within the, uh, the army. And I think now we have a, a third one uh, to read. Um, so, on that note, Richard, thank you for your, your insight, your time, and, and sharing with us. Oh, you're very welcome. It's great to speak with you. This was Abroad Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. I hope you learned something valuable. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and any feedback or rating is greatly appreciated. On LinkedIn and in real life, my name is Benoit Hardivelli and I thank you for your time.